Well, good evening, brothers and sisters. Good to be here as always. I'm going to ask that you open your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 38, this evening. And our text today will start at verse 21, and we're going to read to chapters 30, chapter 39, verse 31. And as you're turning there, we're getting, as you can see, towards the end of the book. We'll finish next week. And just by way of reminder, when we think of the nation of Israel, and when it comes to the terms or words obedience or disobedience, usually what comes to our mind is disobedience, right? Romans chapter 10, verse 21, we're reminded, but as for Israel, he says, all the day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate or contrary people, right? They did not have a reputation for being an obedient people. They were usually disobedient and complaining people rather than having an attitude of gratitude. And that's actually going to be my title for tonight, an attitude of gratitude. And hopefully as we go on, you'll see why I'm giving it that title But as much as that was true concerning Israel, there were points in their history where they were, in fact, obedient. And it was having the proper attitude of gratitude that led to this obedience. And when they were obedient, they were very much blessed, just as we are today. Every time we are obedient to his commands, we are, in fact, a blessed people. We get to witness and experience the blessings of God down here. We're not forgetful of them. We are mindful of them. Sometimes we can be forgetful of all the blessings of God because we get so self-absorbed and that's never, never a good thing. So because we're at the ending of this book, it would be good and do us well just for a brief recap. I'm not going to go overly too crazy, but I just want to breeze through just a little bit. So before this point, many things again have occurred in the young history of Israel. We know that they were in bondage for over 400 years, right? 400 plus years. Then they were delivered from bondage from the very God who made them a people, right? God made them a people through Abraham, and then we know Isaac, and then of course Jacob, whose name changed to Israel. And since their deliverance, they had ups and downs, and the downs were always always the result of their disobedience and complaining. Their first complaint, if you remember, when they were already delivered from Egypt, was when they were complaining about the waters of Marah, that they were too bitter to drink, if you remember that. And then God, through Moses, of course, like he always done, being a gracious, gracious God, took care of the situation, and the waters became sweet. But before we get in our text today, I want to look at Exodus chapter 15, verse 22 to 26. So you can actually keep your finger in our main text, but open to Exodus chapter 15. It should also come on the screen, so you can look at it over there. Exodus 15, 22 to 26. And this is what we read. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days into the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Then he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. And he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. And there he made for them a statute and a regulation 
and there he tested them. And he said, if you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord, your God, and do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you, which I have put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. And that will be very beneficial for us this morning. So very simply and very clearly stated, God declares to them their recipe for success and prosperity, which was to obey him. Some of you guys are standing. Um, We're going to stand. That wasn't my base tech. You guys can sit. I should have said something. Joshua 1.8, if you remember, says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. So then, after the waters of Marah, they grumbled again because they had no food. And then what did God do in his mercy and in grace? He provided food for them. He gave them manna and he gave them quail. Then again, as we move on, they complained about water another time. And what did God do? But he provided water. And then he gave us the Ten Commandments. He gave the nation of Israel the Ten Commandments, which are a summary of the moral law and also acted as a rule of life for his people. And I believe that this was a beautiful gift because in this law, they were able to see the beauty, perfection, and righteousness of God. This was his nature, his character. And though this law was already written on their hearts, having it written down left no room for doubt. That is, in it was much clarity, and with that clarity became understanding that this was what God desired for them to do. Love him wholeheartedly and love the people he created wholeheartedly. That is what God desires. Then in chapter 25, Moses begins to give the instructions for the tabernacle, including all the articles that were going to be in it. And then when Moses was away on the mountain a second time, they sinned by making the golden calf. And it seemed that If there was no good leader around at the moment, they went back to their sinful ways. So then Moses, being a great interceder, he interceded for them, and the Lord relented from destroying them, but many died as a result. Now, once we get to chapter 35, we begin to see this concept of fulfillment. If you take a a closer look... uh, if you've been noticing, it seems to be like there's a lot of repetition. As a matter of fact, when us elders come together to see how we're going to preach, in particular the Pentateuch, there is a lot of repetition. And there is, in fact, repetition. The whole Word of God is very repetitious. We know that. We need that. But if you take a closer look, it's not really so much repetition, but rather different points of fulfillment. In chapter 25, God called the Israelites to contribute and raise money. In chapter 35, we see the fulfillment of it. In chapter 31, we saw how God raised up skilled men to do the specific work necessary for his sanctuary. And then, in the latter part of 35, in the beginning of 36, we then now see the appointment of these men. And if you turn real quick to Exodus chapter 35, I'm going to read another passage. I think it should come up in Exodus chapter 35, verse 20 to 29. This is what it says. 
Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel departed from Moses' presence. Everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him came and bought the Lord's contribution for the work of the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. Then all whose hearts moved them, both men and women, came and brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and bracelets, all articles of gold. So did every man who presented an offering of gold to the Lord. Every man who had in his possession blue and purple and scarlet material on fine linen and goat's hair and ramskins dyed red and porpoise skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver and bronze bought the Lord's contribution. And every man who had in his possession acacia wood for any work of the service bought it. All the skilled women spun with their hands and brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet material and in fine linen. All the women whose hearts stirred with the skill spun the goat's hair. The rulers bought the onk stones, and the stones were setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and the spice and the oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. The Israelites, all the men and women whose heart moved them to bring material for all the work which the Lord had commanded through Moses to be done, brought a freewill offering to the Lord. So you see this concept of all, all, all. Everyone did what they were supposed to do. So what do we see here? God gave instructions, and we see a unified heart of obedience. We know that God alone does the work, but he usually works through his people. That's how he wants to work. He wants to work through his people. He doesn't need them, but he wants to bless them. Next, in the remainder of chapter 36, we see the construction of some of the parts of the tabernacle, namely the curtains and the veil. And this was the fulfillment of what was commanded in chapter 26. In chapter 26, we read, you shall make. And then in chapter 36, we read, then he made. So we see fulfillment. Then last week, Pastor Len did chapters 37 to verse 38, uh, chapter 38, verse 20. And then we saw the construction of all the articles for the tabernacle and Len did a great job of reminding us of the significance of these parts. That is, he showed us how they all point in some way to our Lord Jesus Christ and find their fulfillment in him. So we see the, the concept of typology that is very important for our understanding, especially when we go back and we look at the Old Testament, especially the Pentateuch, right? Everything in that section was a fulfillment of what was instructed in chapters 25 to 35. If you were to go through those passages, you would again see similar language that says, you shall do or you shall make. And then in, in chapter 37, we saw that they, in fact, made, right? So that's a good thing. So it sounded very repetitious, but it was more the fulfillment, right, of what was going to happen. Now this morning, we are getting to the priestly garments. But before we get there, there is something we see in the remainder of chapter 38 that really spoke to me. I thought I was just going to breeze through it and kind of lump it together with the, the remainder of Exodus, but that obviously could not happen. Right, So I didn't think I was going to spend much time in the remainder of 38, but I found myself really blessed while I was studying it. So I want to share that with you guys. 
It's important for us, I've said this before, and many of us that have been in the pulpit preaching or teaching, that we must stop and think before we read the scriptures. Think through the scriptures. Not just read it flippantly or just read it like we're not putting much thought into it. We need to think through the scriptures. We should try our best to even put ourselves maybe in the moment to get a better understanding of what the Lord is actually saying. So it's important to really think, especially, again, in the Old Testament, when things can seem a bit obscure or maybe hard to understand. So if you would stand now with me, I will read the remainder of chapter 38 alone. We are going to do up to chapter 39 towards the end. So let's stand with me. I'm going to read verses 21 to 31 of chapter 38. And of course, I will pray and we will see what God has to say. So verse 21. This is the number of the things for the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the testimony, as they were numbered according to the command of Moses for the service of the Levites by the hand of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. Now Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, made all that the Lord had commanded Moses. With him was Aholiab, the son of Ahizamach, of the tribe of Dan, an engraver and a skillful workman and a weaver in blue and in purple and in scarlet material and fine linen. All the gold that, uh, gold that was used for the work and all the work of the sanctuary, even the gold of the wave offering was 29 talents and 730 shekels according to the shekel of the, she of the sanctuary. The silver of those of the congregation who were numbered was 100 talents and 1,775 shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A becah ahead, that is half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, for each one who passed over those who were numbered, from 20 years old and upward, for 603,550 men. The hundred talents of silver were for casting the sockets of the sanctuary and the sockets of the veil. One hundred sockets for the hundred talents, a talent for a soccer. socket. Of the 1,775 shekels, he made hooks for the pillars and overlaid their tops and made bands for them. The bronze of the wave offering was 70 talents and 2,400 shekels. And with it, he made the sockets to the doorway of the tent of meeting and the bronze altar and its bronze grating and all the utensils of the altar and the sockets of the court all around the sockets of the gate of the court and all the pegs of the tabernacle and the pegs of the court all around. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, again, I ask that you would show your magnificent glory this evening through your word. Teach us and mold us and make us more like your perfect, holy, righteous son, who is our master, who we've sinned many times by showing and proving that our lives don't prove that he is our master. So, Lord, we confess that sin to you and we repent as a body, Lord God, because we are imperfect but we know, Lord, that we are forever forgiven in Christ and that his righteousness, Lord God, is all over us. What a wonderful blessing that is. So help us, Lord God, as we strive to be more like you by learning about you and seeing what you have said in the past for our benefit. So help us again, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you may be seated. So again, before he gets into the priest's garments, 
we read something that is very important that we just read, and that is just how costly the tabernacle was. It was a tent, and when you think of a tent, you think of something that's not really very elaborate, something simple that gets set up and gets taken apart. But this was a tent that was made with precious and very costly materials. So this was not just an ordinary tent, but quite an extraordinary tent, okay, because it was made with precious things. If we were to look at it in modern terms, and maybe some of you guys have more of a modern translation in the Bible, but if we look at this in modern terms, the, the gold, if we just look at the gold, it amounted to over a ton of gold, more close to 2,200 pounds. And if we go by modern times, maybe the past year or so, at its low point, this would have been worth $52 million, and at its high point, $65 million. And though we live in a time period where the dollar is certainly weakening, right? $52 million to $65 million is still an incredible amount of money, right? The silver amounted to just under four tons, which would be worth about $2.6 million in our modern times. So this was truly a glorious and very costly tent, and we're not even considering all the jewels, all the, 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 the fabric, and all the stuff that had a great value to it. Okay, but this was all, again, a, a, the fulfillment of what was said in chapter 35, uh, 25. Where did all the stuff actually come from? If we look at chapter 25 in verses 1, Exodus 25, verse 1, let's look at what it says. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution. And this is the contribution which you are to raise from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet material, fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, porpoise skins, acacia wood, oil for lighting, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onk stones and setting stones for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Let them construct a sanctuary for me, that I may dwell among them, according to all that I am going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. So we see here that the people raised this contribution, not just a few dollars, but an extraordinarily amount, extraordinary amount of wealth was raised up and freely given to back to the Lord to do the work of ministry. So what can we learn about this important concept of giving? That's how God really spoke to me. I'm going to submit to you several things that will help us in our understanding and in our sanctification when it concerns giving. First, where does everything come from and who owns everything? Now, we already know the answer to that. God owns everything. He is the Lord of glory. In the book of Haggai, chapter 2, verse 8, we read this, The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, he's saying that. We need to also understand, forget even this context, but let's just put yourself into the Roman Empire or put yourself into the, our nation. Everything, even when it's in the hands of wicked people, everything is the Lord's, right? He is the owner and ruler of everything. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He is the creator. He is the master. He is ruler. He is sovereign. Everything belongs to God. Everything. Second, 
Second, and before I get into the second, we know that God's will is that his people would be thankful, right? We're just talking about that today in Sunday school with the little kids. Me and Shannon had the kids today, and we talked about how important it is to be thankful for everything that we have, that we would be appreciative of all that he does for them, for us, especially when we know our natural frames, especially when we know that everything comes from him. If you put it in Israel's context, they also knew that everything they had came from him. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, we learn about the sabbatical year. This was every seven years, if you remember. And every seven years, one was to cancel any debts that anyone owed them, right? But only the debts of fellow Israelites, not the debts of foreigners. And most of these debts were actually by poor people. And when the Bible talks about poor and needy people, he's not talking about your typical one maybe that you would see in the streets of New York or something like that. These are people that have incapabilities. And there's a reason why they're poor. Okay, And they rely on the love of the people of God to help support them. Okay, so most of these debts were by poor people. And though, God, and though God said that there would not ever be a time when they were going to be without the poor and needy among them, it should be as though none of them lacked because they were to be a part of the same family. We are to take care of our own. And in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 9, we read this. Beware that there is no base thought. I think I only put verse 10 up there, so I'm just going to read verse 9. Beware that there is no base thought in your heart saying the seventh year, the year of remission is near, and your eye is hostile toward your poor brother, and you give him nothing. Then he may cry out to the Lord against you, and it will be a sin in you. Verse 10. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work, and in all that you undertake. So second, we should give to the Lord freely, and we should give to the Lord joyfully. If love is our motivation, then our giving will always be like this. It'll always be like this, if love is our motivation. Thirdly, acceptable giving. Acceptable giving is always sacrificial. Turn with me real quick to 2 Samuel chapter 24. 2 Samuel chapter 24. And the context here is when David sinned by making a census and counting the people. And this was specifically forbidden by the Lord that a king is not to do this, right? So this was one of those bad David moments. He had a lot of really good moments, but this is one of David's bad moments. And God used the prophet Gad to give David his consequence for his sin. Gave him three choices, if you remember. And David, understanding his God and that his God is merciful, said, I'm just going to put myself in the hands of the Lord for his mercies are great. I paraphrase that. And this is what we read in 2 Samuel following that. And we know that there was a lot of, many people died. 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 18 to 25, reads like this. And Gad came and Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Oranah, the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word, as the Lord commanded. And when 
Aranar looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aranar went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aranar said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you, in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aranar said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and the threshing sledges, and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aranar gives to the king. And Aranar said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Aranar, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David brought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. So we see here that David understood that when it comes to giving and serving, there must be a sacrifice and a cost. So third again, acceptable giving is always sacrificial. Some verses to also go with this. I'm going to jot off, a, read a few of them. Mark chapter 12, in verse 40, uh, 41 to 44. And there's two actual stories to this passage, but I, I want to just focus on one. And this is what it reads. And he sat down opposite the treasury, this is Jesus, and watched the people putting money into the offering box. And many rich people put in large sums, And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, or out of their surplus. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now some may say that that's actually not very wise either. And there's a separate story, but I'm not going to go there. I think the purpose, what Jesus was trying to say, is we look at these people that were probably sounding the trumpet and giving these large sums of money, and this is what we do in the world all the time. We think of one of these multi-millionaire or billionaires that give a sum of thousands or maybe even a few million dollars, and it's the equivalent to literally pennies for the average American, the average person. And we think it's much that they gave, but it really isn't much at all. Right? In other words, giving requires sacrifice. That's what the whole, it requires sacrifice. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16, says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So here God is talking about us sharing what we have. And it could be those things that are not necessities. It could be things that are just simply wants, maybe things that we have that are not necessities. And yet, God is saying that when we share and give out of what we have, that is, in fact, a sacrifice. We're sacrificing something that maybe brings us us joy and pleasure for the sake of another brother or sister. And I've said this many times. And, And listen, this is something that I have to remind myself of. That if me and my life and my family, that we're living a life really good, 
And God is providing all of our needs, which he does, but I can submit to you very clearly that he gives us a lot of wants. I don't need a swimming pool in my backyard. God graciously provided me a swimming pool, okay? I don't need to go on a vacation. But let's just say somehow a brother or sister is in need. Then I might have to be confronted with a situation. Maybe I have to not do something that I want to do to come alongside and help a brother or sister. I'm not saying that, we da- that we're sinning every time we go on vacation. I'm going on vacation in a week, okay? But I'm saying these are things that we might have to think about or be wise, at least, to think about. Proverbs 11, verse 24 to 25. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and the one who waters will himself be watered. And what is he talking about here? Again, we're not name it and claim it preachers, right? We don't believe that if we do everything right, then everything, we're going to live the life of luxury. No, it's not what he's talking about. The idea is when we freely give to the Lord, we are not going to lack. And yet the one who is never content and doesn't do that, he's always going to find something to complain about. He's never going to be satisfied. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10, the Sunday school verse, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits, I love that, of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Again, honor the Lord with the best, right? The first fruits. Here God has blessed me. Mm, This is his portion. For he is great. For he is glorious. And by me doing that, I'm exercising something else. And I'll get to that in a second. One more verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a what? Cheerful giver. And I think we see this pretty good right here in the nation of Israel. If you go back, one more interesting thing here, and then I move to chapter 39. I thought this was just awesome. Exodus chapter 38, verse 8, reads like this. Moreover, he made the labor of bronze with its base of bronze from the mirrors of the serving women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And I was trying to look and study what the significance of this. Where did these faithful women get these mirrors from? They were very elaborate. It took a lot of craftsmanship to make these mirrors, by the way. Well, if we go back... We remember that when they left Egypt, they were provided many precious things from them, were they not? In chapter 12, verse 36, we read that they plundered the Egyptians, right? We need to remember that they were what when they were in Egypt? They were slaves, right? They were slaves. Moses, when he was speaking for God, said, let my people go. In other words, when he's speaking to Pharaoh, he's saying, your slaves, the Hebrews, are actually God's people. Slaves do not own anything, right? Nothing is their own. So they left Egypt with the wealth of things, which was where the material came from for the tabernacle. It's really awesome. John Corrid points out the value of these Egyptian mirrors that these Jewish women knew the value of them as well. Listen to R. Kent Hughes on this. He gives some helpful thoughts. He says the following. 
to understand what happened next. Imagine living your whole life in degradation of slavery. Again, he's thinking through the scriptures, our brother here, right? He's thinking through the scriptures, and that's what we should do. Imagine, put yourself back then for a second. You're a human being, they're human beings, right? Imagine never having anything to call your own, never possessing anything of beauty, never owning anything nice. Now, let's be honest, none of us can even relate to this. Then imagine how much the Israelite women must have envied their Egyptian mistresses with all their finery and cosmetics. Imagine what it was like to help make another woman beautiful day after day without having so much as a mirror to see your own face. And that just kind of spoke to me as I was looking at this. But then we see a command from the Lord and a need and these faithful women sacrificed for their wants. And that's what these, a mirror is not a need. Some women may think it's a need, but it's not a need. They sacrificed their wants for the Lord. And not only were they blessed, but the whole nation was blessed because this was on behalf of all the nation of Israel. And perhaps it may be helpful to be reminded of what the scripture says in Acts 20, verse 35. And this is what we read. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And I believe these faithful women understood this. And because they understood it, they proved it by giving it all up for the Lord. So here again, we see the concept of faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please the Lord. So this tent, being God's holy tent, was quite magnificent. It was the product of God delivering them and the people obeying by giving back to him. And then we move to chapter 39, to the priestly garments. So let's read verse 1 to 7. Moreover, from the blue and purple and scarlet material, they made finely woven garments for ministering in the holy place as well as the holy garments which were for Aaron, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. He made the ephod of gold and of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. Then they hammered out gold sheets and cut them into threads to be woven in with the blue and the purple and the scarlet material and the fine linen, the work of a skillful workman. They made attaching shoulder pieces for the ephod. It was attached at its two upper ends. The skillfully woven band which was on it was like its workmanship of the same material of gold and a blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen just as the Lord had commanded Moses. We see that phrase a lot towards the end here. They made onk stones set in gold filigree settings. They were engraved like the engravings of a signet according to the names of the son of Israel. And he placed them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. It's a lot of reading here. I understand that. So this ephod signified Aaron, who was the high priest, representing the people of Israel before their God. And on the shoulders of the ephod, 
we read that there were two onk stones with the names of six tribes of Israel on each one, six and six, twelve, representing all the people, the high priest representing all the people of God before the Lord. If you guys have ever heard of the idiom of carrying the weight of the world on one's shoulders, right? And when we hear that phrase, it conveys the idea of awesome responsibility, right? You think maybe of some <coughs> a great leader or a president or something like that that has to make a, a, a really difficult decision and it will affect the whole nation, a whole bunch of people. It's as if everything is falling on that particular individual. So he was the go-between. And in a sense, everything was on Aaron at that moment. He had to make all the necessary provisions and make sure that he did everything in accordance to what was written or he would not be effective. Even more than that, his own life would be at stake. And not only that, he was the only go-between. There was only one high priest distinct from the other priest, right? The only high priest. There was only one great high priest. We read on in verse 8. He made the breastpiece the work of a skillful workman, like the workmanship of the ephod of gold and of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. It was square. They made the breastpiece folded double, a span long and a span wide when folded double. And they mounted four rows of stones on it. The first row was a row of ruby, topaz, and emerald. And the second row, a turquoise, a sapphire, and a diamond. And the third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. And they were set in gold filigree settings when they were mounted. The stones were corresponding to the names of the sons of Israel. They were twelve, corresponding to their names, engraved with the engravings of a signet each with its name for the twelve tribes. They made on the breastpiece chains like cords of twisted cordage, uh, twisted cordage work in pure gold. They made two gold filigree settings and two gold rings and put the two rings on the two ends of the breastpiece. Then they put the two gold cords and the two rings at the ends of the breastpiece. They put the other two ends of the two cords on the two filigree settings and put them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod at the front of it. Very detailed here. They made two gold rings and placed them on the two ends of the breastpiece, on its inner edge, with, which was next to the ephod. Furthermore, they made two gold rings and placed them on the bottom of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod, on the front of it, close to the place where it joined above the woven band of the ephod. They bound the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with the blue cord, so that it would be on the woven band of the ephod, and that the breastpiece would not come loose from the ephod, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. So we see here that these specific details, again, were for a purpose. The breastpiece would not fall off, could not fall off, rather, because of what it symbolizes, right? As the go-between and representative, the high priest always had the people he represents on his heart, on his mind. In Exodus 28, verse 29 and 30, we read this, Aaron shall carry the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment over his heart when he enters the holy place for memorial before the Lord continually. 
You shall put in the breastpiece of judgment the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. And Aaron shall carry the judgment of the sons of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. So what does this mean here? This means that Aaron, or whoever was the high priest at any given moment, was so intimately connected to them. And he demonstrated it by putting his life before the Lord every time he was doing that. But also, we must be reminded that just like Moses, Aaron himself was also an authority figure. Everything he did was to also be an example for the people that he was representing. In other words, by him doing what was in accordance to what was written, he was being both a living example of a godly man and an example of laying down his life for the people that he loves, in another sense, right? John 15, verse 12 to 13, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. Now, maybe a little bit different application there, but you understand what I'm saying, okay? Every time he went before the Lord, it was somewhat of a life and death situation. He had to do everything perfectly. It was based on his obedience. Let's read on and finish. Then he made the robe of the ephod of woven work, all of blue, and the opening of the robe was at the top in the center as the opening of a coat of mail with a binding all around its opening so that it would not be torn. They made pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet material and twisted linen on the hem of the robe. They also made bells of pure gold and put the bells between the pomegranates all around on the hem of the robe, alternating a bell and a pomegranate all around on the hem of the robe for the service, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. They made tunics of finely woven linen for Aaron and his sons and a turban of fine linen and a decorated caps of fine linen and the linen breeches of fine twisted linen, and the sash of fine twisted linen, and blue and purple and scarlet material, the work of the weaver, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. They made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold and inscribed it like the engravings of a signet, holy to the Lord. They fastened the blue cord to it, to fasten it on the turban above, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. So now when we come to these next articles, from the undergarments to the robe of the ephod all the way to the tunics, we see a concept that I believe he's trying to be, that he's trying to represent. In Exodus 28.2, we read, You shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. And this means that Aaron, like Moses, was what? He was set apart. Right? He was set apart as holy. The whole nation was set apart. We know that. His garments were unlike the rest of the people and the rest of the priests. But he was also representing a people that were what? Unlike the rest of the world. We can even say that when we gather for worship on Sunday, it's a day unlike the rest of the days. And it should be treated like that as well. So I certainly believe that we shouldn't be flippant on how we dress when we come to work. I'm not going to give a dress code, but we shouldn't be coming in our pajamas, our gym clothes, like we just came out of bed. 
we should dress with dignity and respect. That's how God's people should dress no matter what. Okay? In Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6, it says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you, sh then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Narkent Hughes writes the following. He says, the Scotsman Robert Murray McKean made a famous comment about pastoral ministry that has served as a moral compass for many ministers. He said, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. McKean's point was that a holy calling demands a holy life, which is true. But of course, McKean was exaggerating. The church's greatest need is not the personal holiness of his minister, but the perfect righteous righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we know that's true no matter what. If we are in Christ, nothing can change that righteousness because it's been imputed to us. However, if Israel's high priest had said what McKean said, it would not have been an exaggeration. His people's greatest need, that is Aaron, let's go back to Aaron, the high priest, his people's greatest need was his personal holiness. God can only accept what is suitable to his own nature and character. Since he is a holy God, he can only accept the holy sacrifice offered by a holy representative. And brothers and sisters, what I believe, I believe what Brother McKean says is absolutely correct. At that time in God's history, Aaron was that man in the typical role that was placed on him, that, in that he was functioning in. But Aaron was only a type, wasn't he? Moses was only a type. He said, God will send you a prophet one day like me, right? Talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. We've learned in the past that types are both like and unlike their antitypes. The antitypes are the real thing. The offerings offered were what? They were only a type as well, weren't they? But types, again, are both like and unlike their antitypes. The tabernacle, with all of its articles, were what? Only a type, right? But types are both like and unlike their antitypes. So what am I saying? Why am I saying this? Because of how great that we have it, being the New Testament church. Reading this with the lens that we have. Everything mentioned up to here served as types of Christ. Where Israel being a type of the church, we can say. They tell us a little about Christ, but only the part. Only in a mysterious way, but we have Christ, the real thing. All the mysteries have been revealed in Christ. If you look at Zechariah chapter 3, and I love this. Zechariah chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. says, Now listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you. Indeed, they are men who are a symbol. For behold, I am going to bring in my servant, the branch, capital B. Amen. 
For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua, on one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. And brothers and sisters, we serve the ever-living branch who is the almighty Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is and was and is to come, the one which all these types and shadows point to. We don't have to worry about something going wrong as the nation of Israel did. Every time they had to worry about something going wrong. But in fact, everything has gone perfectly right in Christ. He said it is finished when he was on a cross. Christ did all that he was sent to do. And he wants his people to be one. Just like the Godhead has and always will be one. We learn from the nation of Israel in the context of our reading this evening that they were, in fact, of one accord. We said their reputation was usually that of disobedience, but here in this passage, we actually see one of those, one of those moments where they're actually unified in obedience. And they were blessed for it. So I would submit to you that there's great power in unity. And even better than that, there's great power in unity when that unity stems from an attitude of gratitude. Everything that was raised for this tabernacle came from the people freely giving in obedience to the Lord. I wasn't going to do it because I know there's so much reading, but I am going to read John 17. It's verses 1 to 21. It's Jesus' high priestly prayer. And just listen to this, what he prays for. And this concept of unity, and unity in having an attitude for gratitude. And just, I'm just going to read it, and I'm going to end and allow the Spirit to speak to you. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you have given him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth. He was perfectly obedient. Having accomplished the work which you have given me to do, the covenant of redemption acted out in time and space and history. Now, Father... Glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you, have gave, who you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours and yours are mine and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world and yet they themselves are in the world and I come to you. 
Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that, na- that they may be what? One, even as we are one. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name which you have given me, and I guarded them. And not one of them perished but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy and made, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also will believe in me through their word, that they may all be what? One, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. So what is Jesus' heart when he's about to depart? Make sure, Lord, make them one, in one accord. Make them unified, unified in me, in the truth of God's word. And there's great power when God's people come together, all being lovers of God, first and foremost, with one accord. Wait and see what God does in that moment. We don't want to miss out on anything that God wants to bless us with, right? So let's be continue to strive to be unified for the sake of God's glory and God's glory alone. Let's pray. Father, you are so amazing. So wonderful, so holy. When I think of you, again, I'm always dumbfounded by how amazing you are. Just when I stop, Lord, and I think about you being the self-existent one, I am dumbfounded. I am amazed by your glory, by your majesty, by your beauty. It is those things, when I think of your amazing attributes, they bring me closer to you. You are God. Help us to live this life that you have given us in a way that pleases you, and no less. Help us, for Christ's sake. Amen. I would ask that we stand as we close in a doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. 
Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.